This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we're discussing labor and immigrant rights activist, Bert Corona. Umberto Noe Corona was born on May 29, 1918, in El Paso, Texas. His parents were Mexican immigrants. His father... Noe Corona, had fought in the Mexican Revolution. In the United States, Noe Corona continued his involvement in revolutionary activities. The family briefly returned to Mexico in 1922, but when Noe was murdered, possibly by the president's forces, Bert and his family returned to El Paso. Bert's mother, Margarita, pulled him out of public school in the fourth grade when she was frustrated with the treatment of Mexican kids who were punished for speaking Spanish. At the Harwood Boys School in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Corona organized what he later called his first strike when he and other boys refused to attend classes until their demand was met that students no longer be spanked for questioning their teachers. Corona returned to El Paso for high school, where he became a basketball star and won an athletic scholarship to the University of Southern California. In 1936, having an athletic scholarship meant that Corona was recommended for a job where he could work nearly full-time while in college. In his case, the employment was at the Brunswick Pharmaceutical Company. And it was there that Corona found something that interested him more than basketball, as he became involved in the labor struggle. When the Longshoremen's Union wanted to organize farm workers in Orange County, Corona volunteered to help. He recruited union members and, in 1936, led 2,500 Mexican-American and Mexican workers in a strike. Having found his calling in the labor movement, Corona left college and took a job as a union organizer with the Congress of Industrial Organizers, or CIO, where he organized workers in the canning and packing industries. In August 1941, Corona eloped and married a Jewish-American labor organizer named Blanche Taff. When the U.S. entered World War II, Corona volunteered for the Army Air Corps. When he was done with basic training and officer training, during which he witnessed racial discrimination, Corona went to California for flight training and worked 16-hour days, both training and in clerical work. In California, 
Corona was given a psychiatric evaluation designed to root out so-called deviants. And then he went through rounds of interrogation as officers questioned his political activities. With no explanation, Corona was dismissed from the Air Corps and assigned to mailroom duty in an army hospital. He later trained as a paratrooper. Just before he was set to deploy overseas, he requested a pass to go to Atlanta. The pass was issued, but improperly, which Corona later felt was purposeful. And as a result, he was locked in a federal prison for 45 days without pay while his unit shipped out. After World War II, Corona returned his attention to the plight of Mexican-Americans and undocumented Mexican immigrants. He joined forces with union leaders Phil and Albert Uschiano to found La Hermandad Mexicana Nacional, or the Mexican National Brotherhood, to support immigrants and organize workers in San Diego. In 1968, Corona co-founded Centro de Acción Social Atomono, or CASA, with Soledad Chloe Alatore. CASA provided practical help to Mexican immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, by teaching classes on reading and writing in English, along with history and driving courses. CASA, as a community-based organization, acted much like earlier Mexican mutual aid societies. But CASA also had another goal, to help convince Mexican-Americans to support undocumented immigrants and to show that they were one people who should join forces in their labor and social efforts. In 1974, Corona worked with immigrant rights activist and Catholic priest Mark Day to write the Charter of Rights for Immigrant Workers, also called the Immigrant Bill of Rights, that they presented to the United Nations. In the document, they argued that immigrants had, as human rights, the right to job security, equal pay, and access to labor unions, along with freedom from deportation and the right to unite with their families. Corona distributed the document widely, which helped to shift the opinions of Mexican-Americans toward support of the undocumented. Corona had left college before earning his degree, but his life experience was so valued that he lectured at colleges, including at Stanford and at several Cal State campuses. Teaching at Cal State Los Angeles in the 1970s and 80s, Corona led a group of adjuncts who were pushing for social activism to be part of the mission of the Chicano Studies Department. Corona and others were fired by the college in the wake of their agitating. Blanche Taff, Corona's first wife and the mother of his three children, died in 1993. 
Corona later remarried to activist Angelina Castillo. In the book Memories of Chicano History, which was a collaboration between Corona and historian Mario Garcia, Corona says, quote, Frankly, I never concerned myself with a place in history. I've been busy organizing and working with others. If my life has meant anything, I would say that it shows you can organize workers and poor people if you work hard, are persistent, remain optimistic, and reach out to involve as many people as possible. Unquote. Joining me now to help us learn more about the life of Bert Corona is Dr. Eladio B. Bobadilla, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Kentucky, whose 2019 dissertation is entitled One People Without Borders, The Lost Roots of the Immigrants' Rights Movement, 1954-2006. to Hello, Eladio. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kelly. I'd love to talk about my research. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So it's super exciting uh, to talk to you. We've known each other over Twitter for a while, so it's always good to actually get to talk to people about their research. I wanted to start by asking you, your dissertation is about immigrants' rights activists, uh, and of course, we're going to talk about Bert Corona. How did you first get into this research? What, what sort of inspired you? Well, I, I wanted to tell the story of of people that I grew up with, the story of my parents, especially of my neighbors, of of you know everyone that I that I grew up with uh, seemed to seemed to do farm work. Um, I, I grew up in Delano, California, um, after moving to the states from Mexico in, in 1997, and, and so all I knew was this community and 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 this community of farm workers and and poor people trying to make a living. I wanted to tell their stories. And when I started to do the research, I focused on Cesar Chavez. And what I found immediately was that there was this really unsavory story about Chavez, where in the 1970s, uh, and even before that, you know, he was in, engaged in this anti-immigrant project. And I found that really bizarre because I'd always thought of Cesar Chavez as this patron saint of, of brown people, of all brown people. And I realized that there was a larger story here, that there was a story of Mexican-Americans who weren't always pro-immigrant and who actually had to come to that position by way of this this long struggle, um, you know, intellectual and labor and personal struggle. And and so that's the story I ended up telling is this this shift from from. Uh, from that moment, and re really before that, I mean, Cesar Chavez was not the first to to have these anti-immigrant positions, and that's the story. Again, I ended up telling is how we got from from that to to today, to how we often think about Mexican Americans and their views, um, uh, which are typically pro-immigrant, not always, even today. But you know, I, again, I wanted to sort of tell the story of of folks like my parents, and it became a bigger story about the immigrants' rights struggle and, and how it how it became a movement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a I should mention it's a great dissertation. I've read it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those people that reads dissertations for fun. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, I I don't I I don't think I've read my own dissertation just out of pure 
fear and, and panic about all, all everything that's wrong with it. But I'm glad someone read it. Yes. Well, it's very good. <laughs> well, thank so you. I want to come back some to this story of the shift, but let's talk a little bit about Bert Corona mm-hmm. and what are the types of things that we have from him? So he, a lot of people have probably just not even heard of him at all, or maybe only in passing. Uh, but we have a lot of material about him. So what are the kinds of the, the records and the archives that we have to, to know about his life? So the records that really tell his story uh, are primarily at Stanford University, where the records of his the organization that, that he came to be associated with, that he founded, CASA, the Centro de Acción Social Autónomo, or Center for Autonomous Social Justice, right, um, that, that he built from the ground up in the 1960s. Um, and, and there's also a great deal of material in this phenomenal collection that is all digitized based in San Diego, uh, I think the University of California, San Diego, uh, the Herman Baca papers. And Herman Baca was his mentee. You know, he became sort of the person who took up his mantle after he, after he passed. And well before that, they were working together. So there's just a, a, an immense... Uh, uh, there's a treasure trove of documents that are available online that I use all the time to teach about immigrants' rights. And, and I'll, I'll always plug that because if, if anyone's interested in teaching using, you know, using primary sources to teach, you can find some amazing stuff online at, at the Herman Baca, Herman Baca collection. Excellent. So Bert Krona himself, uh, it seems like his family life is fairly foundational to sort of who he is, who he becomes. Could you talk a little bit about sort of, uh, you know, where he's coming from as as he's entering this immigrants' rights space? Yeah, I mean, he was he was always, I think, destined to to become who he became. He was he was the son of a revolutionary. You know, during the Mexican Revolution, his father fought uh, alongside Bancheria. Mm-hmm. Uh, came from a working class family, uh, right on the border. Grew up in El Paso. Eventually, they moved to. Uh, he moves to California and and sees the immigrant struggle there. But for him, I mean, I think this radical tradition uh, was instilled on him. He was, it was instilled into him very early on in his, in his life, and and he always looked for ways to. To improve the lives of people like his parents, right? Uh, I talked about how I wanted to tell the story of my parents. I think so many of us are, are uh, shaped by our upbringing in you know really fundamental and foundational ways, and you can really see that in his life. I think he saw the suffering of, of people like his parents, like his uh, his community's suffering, and wanted, in some ways, I think, to to carry on that revolutionary tradition. Uh, he did it in, in a different way. But I, I still find it odd that so few people understand how foundational he is to to Mexican American identity and specifically to the to the immigrant rights movement, because he is uh, as as many of us, you know, will say the the father of the of the immigrant rights movement. And it, there's you mentioned Cesar Chavez earlier. There's such an interesting connection there then between work and labor and immigration. So I wonder if you could talk through that a little bit, why it was that Chavez was anti-immigrant and how sort of Bert Corona approached that differently and, and saw things in a different way. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's really important to, t- to take a nuanced approach to Chavez and his position on immigration, because it made a great deal of sense, frankly. I mean, there were 
immigrants, a huge number of immigrants in the in the Central Valley, where he was trying to make something out of this movement that that he and other farm workers began in the late 60s. And, and it was making it really difficult for them to organize and to win their strikes when employers could simply look to the border or just to the fields where other immigrants were eager to take the work, right? And break those strikes. So it made a, a degree of sense for Chavez to, to say, you know, we can't win without, without taking the stance. Immigration was a real issue and it was, you know, depressing wages. It was making it difficult for the union to win its strikes. So it's not like Chavez was, was just some xenophobic, you know, anti-immigrant is, isn't even really, I think, entirely fair. I think his positions seem to a lot of people to be anti-immigrant. He would have framed them as, as anti-scab, right? But, but Bert Corona saw things differently. And, and he thought that these immigrants, these undocumented people could, instead of being detrimental to the union, that they could be essential in winning these, these strikes, that they could be won over, and that, that they could be convinced to take part in this movement. And so he articulated this position over and over again, and uh, eventually helped shift that, that position. I mean, Chavez did ultimately shift his views on immigration, partly because of all this pressure, partly because he understood that that it just wasn't working the way he was trying to do things, that that immigrants were going to be there regardless. And that uh, at some point he was, you know, sort of fighting the same people that his union ostensibly represented. But I, I credit Corona with much of that shift, um, certainly with Chavez's own personal shift and his own views, but more importantly, with the larger shift that we see across Mexican-American um, groups. And, and individuals and, and, and the entire Mexican-American community, which for a time, uh, much like Chavez, felt deeply ambivalent about immigration, if not outwardly hostile. And sometimes they were very hostile. And by the 1970s, that position has changed completely. I mean, there are still people who are anxious about immigration. There are still people today who are Mexican-American and who feel anxious about immigration. But that was a minority by the 1970s. It was a very, very quick shift. And and Bert Corona is central to that story. And Bert Corona and Chavez ha- had actual conversation or relationship. What what did that look like? Well, it was always friendly. I mean, they were they were friends. They considered each other allies, friends, comrades. So it was it was always positive. And I think that's part of what shifted Chavez's attitude. So there were a lot of people, not just Corona reaching out to Chavez and, and saying, this is, this is nonsense. This is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Some were very harsh and said, you are betraying the movement. You, this movement you created, you are breaking it. You're, you're destroying your own movement and, and you're hurting the people that you are supposed to be representing. And there was a lot of anger and a lot of rage uh, and a lot of disappointment. Bert Corona uh, was much more diplomatic in his approach and, and his, in his letters to Chavez and his, his uh, communication with Chavez, he he always started with, "I see, I see where you're going through, and I see what the movement is facing, and I know this is difficult, but let's look at this in a different way." And that really seemed to be what Chavez responded to. Now, Chavez had a dark side, and by the middle of the 1970s, that that dark side was taking over. 
and and any sort of criticism was almost counterproductive uh, to make anything change. He he would just become extremely defensive, and and it, and it wasn't working. Uh, Bert Corona, I think, was was really a people person. Understood who he was talking to, and how he needed to be approached, and and ultimately did help shift those attitudes um, in Chavez himself, and then in the larger movement. Yeah, and so one of the things that I find so interesting, and of course I've I've looked at this in different groups as I've uh, done these series of episodes, is that you, you mentioned this shift in the attitude among Mexican Americans toward immigration. But it's also almost a shift in how they view themselves as a group, sort of who who is this group that we belong to? And then it continues, of course, right, to not be just Mexican-Americans, but a sort of larger Latino, Hispanic kind of group. Could you talk about that shift? Because I find it so fascinating that this isn't, you know, we, we look at it now and think, well, it's just sort of natural. Of course, right. it's that way, but it, it's anything but natural. You're absolutely right. It 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 feels natural because we we have you know, we live in this moment where yeah most Hispanics most Latinos tend to be pretty pro immigrant right and again there there are exceptions but on on the whole uh, we tend to associate that position with with Mexican Americans and Latinos more more broadly but yeah that wasn't always the case and um, Herman Baca uh, whom I mentioned earlier and who became you know, Corona's partner in, in all of this and his mentee likes to tell a story. I interviewed him uh, a few times and uh, and others have interviewed him. And it seems like anytime anyone asks him about this, he tells the story. And and he remembers um, Bert Corona walking into his print shop. Uh, I think it was the 1960s, early 1960s. I'm blanking on the exact date. But Bert Corona walked into uh, Herman Baca's print shop um, and they had this conversation about the Chicano movement and what, how to how to make something of it, how to uh, protect the, the Chicano community, the Mexican American community, and Corona said to Baca um, something along the lines of, "We have to get ahead of this immigration issue." And, and Baca tells me that his reaction was, "What the hell are you talking about? Uh, what is what does that have to do with us?" Is what he asked him. I think he he says that he asked him, um, "Are you on peyote?" Something like that. But he was he was genuinely shocked that that was the answer um, for for Baca. You know, those were two separate issues. Immigration was one issue, and you know the status and the and the challenges that Mexican Americans faced was a totally different issue. Bert Corona thought they weren't, and I think he was proven right that that it it became the same the same question. And and very quickly, Baca came to understand that that he was right, right that. Immigration control was hurting Mexican Americans as well, that they were being harassed by the authorities, especially in the borderlands, but uh, sometimes beyond, uh, that they were often deported. I mean, U.S. citizens were, were being deported if they couldn't prove they were citizens, that uh, that nativists were uh, looking to hurt people who, who looked like immigrants, you know, brown people, and and that these that these folks face discrimination on the job, right? Because they, they could be seen as potentially undocumented. And and, and uh, there, there were all these issues that no one seemed to to be paying attention to, that Bert Corona said, we, we must pay attention to them. We have to. Like, uh, this is the same struggle. And, and we can't really help ourselves if we don't help our undocumented brothers and sisters. 
You mentioned in, in your dissertation, the, this idea of without borders. And so I think Bert Corona talks about that. And you say that he doesn't just mean sort of physical border between Mexico and the U.S. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on, on sort of what he means by being a people without borders. Yeah, I think I think it does mean a number of things. And in one sense, I think he, you know, he always dreamed of of a world without borders. He was a radical. He was a socialist. And he, he imagined he, he viewed borders as inherently illogical. But he also, I think, understood the limits of of that idealism. And often when he spoke about uh, about this ideology, Sin Fronteras without borders, I think he, he meant uh, almost more a psychological uh, state of mind, wherein Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants saw each other and themselves as one community, and for him that was the the goal um, ultimately for for people to see themselves as brothers and sisters beyond those borders. He understood that these borders existed, and you know his language is often idealistic, but his his approach to the issue is often pragmatic. You know he he work to teach immigrants their rights, uh, to teach them basic skills like driving, like reading and writing. And and, and so I think uh, what that meant for him more than anything else was that that communities north and south of the border would see themselves and each other as as fighting the same battles. Just started talking a little bit about teaching immigrants about their rights, and you mentioned CASA earlier. I wonder if you could talk some about CASA, what this organization was, why it was important. Sure. Yeah. So CASA was founded in 1968. So, uh, Bert Corona and uh, Soledad de la Torre, who was a key partner for him, built this organization. You know, the, the name is no coincidence. Uh, CASA means home in Spanish. And, and he and and Torre saw it as as a as a kind of base for Mexican immigrants in in Southern California, where they could learn about their basic rights, uh, where they could learn about labor rights, where where they could pick up basic skills. So that was the kind of practical side of Casa. Um, I think it was also an ideological center. It was. A communication center, right, where where people drafted statements uh, that then were distributed, where people could come and organize and, and float ideas and, and think about ways to help Mexican American and Mexican immigrants protect their their rights and each other's rights. Out of this this place comes the the Immigrants' Bill of Rights uh, or the Charter of Rights that uh, that Mark Day, uh, then a, a Catholic priest, he, he has since left the church. I think the church, he certainly left the priest, but he's a fascinating figure himself and he doesn't get any credit for all of this, but he's he's central to this movement. But um, this Charter of Rights, um, you know, is a manifesto really. It has no legal basis, obviously, but it essentially says what modern activists have been saying, that there is no such thing as illegal people, that Human beings cannot be illegal, that they are uh, human beings with human rights. And um, again, this doesn't have any sort of legal force, but it but it creates a profoundly important ideology. And it, it helps spread this idea and this message that, that very quickly is picked up by Chicanos and Chicanas, people who are, you know, beaming with ethnic pride. And suddenly they understand that 
immigration is part of the story and that's part of their own struggle as well. I think it's important and, and it seems like Casa is starting to to get into this to understand you started this whole story with talking about farmers and how you were looking at, at farming, uh, but that Bert Corona was interested not just in Mexican-Americans and immigrants on the farm and in the rural mm-hmm. areas, but in cities and urban areas. Yeah. And that seems like a really important point to make because I think it it's still the case that people think, you know, sort of especially migrant farm workers, you know, that that that's sort of the picture they have of of Mexican immigration. So could you talk a little bit about that, about that sort of urban immigrant piece and and what that meant? Yeah, here again, I think Bert Corona was prophetic. I think he understood that that demographics, of course, were changing, but but also migration patterns were changing greatly. So all this this focus uh, in the 1960s and early 70s was on uh, on the fields, on uh, Central California specifically, and 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 certainly that's that's where this the, the farm worker movement began, and and in some ways these questions really took off, but. Uh, more and more people were moving to cities and, and immigrants, more and more undocumented immigrants are moving to cities, places like San Diego, of course, Los Angeles, Chicago. And Bert Corona, um, understood that and thought that, that there needed to be, of course, a focus on the farm work struggle, uh, but that it also had to be zoomed out and, and thought of as a larger movement and, and the cities were, were critical. And, and in fact, even, the people we might call mar- migrant farm workers are becoming less migrants and, and, and less attached to the fields. So today, for example, when I visit the line of California or the Central Valley generally, and I talk to, to farm workers, they, they live in the cities. They live in places like Delano and Bakersfield and Tulare. They may work in agriculture and, and in the fields, but um, they're not really migrant in any real sense anymore. So things were changing, and Bert Corona saw that and thought that the cities were where much of this organizing was going to be happening, uh, and he was right. I mean, today that is where most uh, most immigrants' rights organizing is taking place. Mm, yeah. So I want to jump backwards in time for a minute before jumping forwards in time. <laughs> and the the backwards in time piece is that Bert Corona and World War II, I think. So he. He joins the military or tries to join the military and runs into this really quite discriminatory uh, situation. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about that. And I know that you also have a military background. So I, I wonder, you know, if you could sort of talk it all, you know, have things changed? <laughs> I hope, you know, what what did that look like for Bert Corona versus what that might look like now? Yeah, so for, I mean, Bert Corona faced discrimination in the military, like most Mexican Americans and most people of color did in in World War II and in that era. I think he was disillusioned with with a lot of what he saw. He was he was made to feel like an outsider, which I think helped him understand the plight of of the undocumented. And and again, to come to this conclusion that that like them, Mexican Americans faced discrimination and racism and and class prejudices and exploitation. Yeah, so I mean, certainly things have changed. I I think today's military is obviously much more diverse, mm-hmm. uh, much more attuned to to the changing demographics and, and values of this country. I think the worst thing that I suffered, and I, I, I tell the story, and, and some people find it amusing, some find it horrifying, but 
for a time, uh, you know, because you can join the military if you're not a citizen, as long as you have a green card. And that that was my uh, my situation. And all of us who were not citizens yet, um, we were given emails like everyone else, but we were also given a country code that had to be attached to the email. So it was like my first name dot last dot MX, right? At, at Navy.mil and people from the Philippines. It was like that PI and, and, and so on. And it was this, I remember at the time feeling really just awful uh, by that because I, I mean, here I am serving the US military. I'm doing what everybody else is doing, but I was you know literally marked with this, this foreign label and I guess that's what you might, what we might call like a microaggression now these days, right? I didn't have a word for it, but I knew it felt weird and odd. And I don't think they do that anymore. But, you know, uh, certainly that's nothing compared to the kinds of kinds of things that people suffered in, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, um, yeah. and then through 70s and, and around that time. But things have changed. Things are changing. I mean, the, the military is is much more diverse. Again, I think leadership, the leadership is, is learning to, to work with that increasing diversity. The military these days likes to talk about diversity and inclusion, just, just like universities and others do. And just like universities and other organizations, they often fail to actually make something of, of, of that rhetoric. I'm sure you've seen the problems that, that uh, the academies, for example, are facing with sexual assault, assault uh, with with sexual violence generally in the military, there's there are still instances of of racism and discrimination, but certainly uh, things have gotten somewhat better in in some ways. Yeah. So one of the things that that you wrote about in your dissertation that I knew uh, really nothing about, and despite the fact that I look at a lot of immigration history, is this 1986 law. I, I forget exactly what it's called, but bipartisan support signed by Reagan that that's looking at immigration and is is trying to sort of make everybody happy and yeah. makes nobody happy as it's trying to do it. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of the the long-term impact that that, that has had. Yeah, this story really begins in the, in the 1960s when the Brazil program ends and really picks up in the 1970s when it no longer is just a story of the Southwest or about the Southwest workforce. Before, immigration largely is confined, or questions about immigration are largely confined to the Southwest. By the 70s, it's a national story. And there's this nativist panic happening about the, the rising numbers of, of undocumented immigrants. Uh, yeah, by the 80s, it's clear that that everyone wants to do something about it. But by the 1980s, we have all of these factions, too, that have developed we have a, a really robust uh, immigrants' rights movement led by people like Bert Corona and Herman Baca. Uh, we have a nativist lobby that is headed by, by organizations like FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. You have labor groups that don't quite know what to make of it. And you have employers who actually want more, you know, more migration and easier access. And so it's this mess that that uh, at least the policy and in terms of policy, it's a mess. No one seems to know what to do with it. Everyone wants to fix it. But what fixing it means, you know, means something different to everyone. And eventually we get this law that that is passed in 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act and signed by Reagan. And it, it as I detail in the dissertation, it's messy. It seems like it's this piece of legislation seems to be dead. Several times, but somehow 
all this bipartisan maneuvering gets it passed and it 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 does essentially three things it it provides amnesty for um, initially about a million ultimately about three million mostly men who are in the country without documents um it's uh, it also hardens the border so it begins to militarize it and it creates this uh guest worker program and so the idea is that you give something to everyone the flip side of that is that it gives something to everyone and someone's always angry about what the other groups got what i think is important about this law is that well first it's it's precisely what we might call uh comprehensive immigration reform which we always hear about this really was comprehensive in the sense that it it did a lot of everything right it it tackled every aspect of immigration labor ethnicity and and immigrants rights it, it just tried to to do everything and and its strength was also its weakness uh, by doing that it it didn't satisfy any one group and so i think what's happened since then is that anytime we bring up this this uh this phrase um, or, or this policy goal of of uh, comprehensive immigration reform someone will always point to 86 and say we can't do that because it failed we can't do that again we can't give amnesty to immigrants because then more will just keep coming and want more amnesty we can't the other side might say we can't do this because it's just going to make the border more dangerous so it has really kind of deadlocked us in 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 this conversation and i actually think that it was a, a brilliant uh, law i mean I, there are things i hate about it as 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 an activist as someone who cares about immigrants rights i i don't like a lot of what it did in terms of militarizing the border but in terms of realistic policy and what what can be accomplished uh i i, I think it was quite the achievement and and it's it's just uh looking back at it you know i i I realize how difficult it was to get that legislation passed and also how difficult it will be to get anything passed that resembles that in the future. I think we're, you know, it, it was such an important law and such a, such a monumental achievement, but, but also it kind of, um, made everyone angry. And, and now it seems like we'll never be able to do that again. Like to really sit down and look at different factions and different aspects and and come up with comprehensive solution or solutions. I think at the time people really saw immigration as this this dynamic developing story, and uh, it wasn't meant to fix immigration. This was meant to address immigration in that moment. And I think that was really what was most brilliant about it is that people looked at what was happening in the moment and figured out a way to create you know, fairly comprehensive um, legislation that, that addressed every aspect of, 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 of the issue. And now people see it differently. Right? They see it as this thing that was supposed to fix immigration problems and didn't, and it failed. So everyone thinks of it as a failure. I actually think it was a monumental success uh, at doing at least what it intended to do in that moment. Yeah, it's uh, thinking from the perspective of today's politics, the idea that two parties could come together on anything <laughs> is rather right. mind blowing. <laughs> and not just the two parties, but all the factions right around it. Um, and, and, and yet it, it happened in 1986 and it hasn't happened since. And I don't know if it will happen again. Yeah, I guess I just wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what 
you started this project uh, thinking about your family and wanting to to study people like your parents and your neighbors. What going through doing this research sort of meant for you personally, sort of what what all of that helped you sort of think about the 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 family and the the neighbors and and all of that and and maybe reflect on you know we we know that history and academia don't happen in a vacuum but i think it's something people don't always talk about so you know what what it means to have that sort of personal relationship with the subject i found this really healing for a number of reasons i uh, grew up in central Mexico in Zacatecas, and we were extremely poor. We lived in an adobe house with no indoor plumbing uh, for a time with no electricity. We had next to nothing, and, and we survived because my dad would come to the States and work here seasonally. That also meant that he was gone, you know, six, nine months out of the year. And for for a little kid, it's it's so hard to see your, your, your father leave every year and not know if he's coming, if he's going to come back and not knowing if he's going to be okay. And when I was 11 years old, my, my dad came back and told us we were moving as a family, my mom and my sister to the States. And that changed everything. I just because I, I wanted to, to have a more stable family and I wanted to be with my parents, both of them. So we moved to the States. Um, life changed drastically for me, but, but I also was undocumented and I, I didn't, actually get my, get my green card until I was 19 years old, which is when I joined the Navy. So putting together this this dissertation now, now this book manuscript has, has really helped me work through some of those some of those issues of identity, right? And figure out, figure out where, where, where I really belong, where I come from, and where I, uh, what I've sort of made of my own identity. And I've realized that it's, it's not that uncommon, right? For, for, People like me for immigrants or even for, for first, second generation um, children of immigrants to to wrestle with this question of identity about who they are. And, and I think you see that actually in, in you know, the, the subjects that I write about. They're trying to work out who they are. Are they Mexican? Are they American? Are they are they Mexican-American? And if so, what does that mean? And that changes. It's never static, right? For, for people in the 1950s, it, it meant one thing. For people in the 60s and 70s during the Chicano movement, it meant something else entirely. That is changing again. We're even wrestling with with the language again, whether Latinx or Latinx works better, or if we should say Latine, or if we should stick to Latino, Latina. There are all these questions about identity happening all the time. And, and, I, and I think it's it's benefited me to be explicit about my own my own place in this story. As, as someone who is an immigrant, the, the child of farm workers, an immigrant myself, someone who came from from Delano, California, where the the you know the drama of the farm workers movement took place, I have really leaned into that. And for a time, I was really self conscious about it and, and and thought that maybe that wouldn't be received well. But I think it matters. I think it matters that we be honest with ourselves and, and where we fit and the stories we tell. Uh, and I've tried to do that. I try to do that in my own teaching. I have to tell my students where I come from and and why these stories matter to me. And, and I hope it's received well. I, I hope people find it um, to be as important as I do. And I, and I think I, I think there will be some lessons in there for for activists, for historians, for students. But yeah, that this is this is my story in a sense, and and, it, and it's also a story that 
that is relevant to millions of people. So I, I hope that it resonates with them, and I hope that it, it tells some version of the immigrant story and, and also the larger American story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I I always like when I get to see sort of who scholars are, not just their research, but who they are. And I, I, you can't help but be affected by who you are. And so I think being so open and honest about that is is really, really great. All right. So on a lighter note, my last question for you, you're known on Twitter for your food takes and oh, no. uh, <laughs> you grew up in, in Mexico. So I want to know what's the best Mexican food. <laughs> Oh, that is, you're really putting me on the, on the spot. <laughs> uh, like the, the best dish? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, camarones a la diabla, like deviled shrimp. It's something that, that my mom used to make for me as comfort food and I, that I have yet to perfect and I'm working on it. And one day I will, but uh, nothing makes me as happy as, as, as camarones a la diabla. Just it makes me think of my mother and and all the wonderful moments we share together. And, and so I always think of her and, and how happy you made, made her to, to make me happy with that dish. So that's always going to be the closest to my heart. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we mention about Bert Corona? I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, you know, yes and no, but I mean, I could talk about him for hours, but I think, <laughs> I think we got to the, the heart of who he is and why it matters. I, I guess. I would just say that I, I find it odd that that so little is known about him. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows about Cesar Chavez, and we should. He's an important story, both because of of, of what he accomplished and and where he failed, um, and his his limits, and and because he was in a sense a saint, and 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 then also had his own demons. I mean, he's a fascinating person, and maybe that's what we know so much about him. But Bert Corona, I think, is just as important to the story of. Um, of Mexican Americans of the Southwest uh, of, of labor history. I think he's a critical figure that we don't pay enough attention to. And I, I hope to start to change that. I mean, some people have, have written about this recently and, uh, you know, I hope to, to really advance that story. But Bert Corona is essential to our history. It's essential to America. He's essential to American history. He's certainly essential to Latinx history. And he's a, a huge part of, of 20th century labor history as well. So I, I hope more people learn more about him in the future. Well, I'm so grateful to you uh, for, for sharing your information about him because I, I, I'm excited to have learned about him. Thank you. And if people want to follow you so they know when your book comes out so they can read uh, all this super fascinating history, uh, how can they follow you? I'm on Twitter, uh, probably too much. Um, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. E underscore B underscore Bobadilla, B-O-B-A-D-I-L-L-A. Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Oh, wonderful. So. Thank you. Aladio, thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. NSW.